Well, Lot's got it all. A nice car, beautiful house, lovely wife. But then he started feeling sluggish. He thought, that's all right. I just got to get more sleep. Started working out, eating right, putting in his eight hours, but his fingers started to swell up. His hair came out in clumps. What a time to see the doctor, right? Uh-uh. See, a lot doesn't really trust doctors. Instead, he goes to the 1,000-year-old temple of the snake god. Now, Lalat Patnaik, big house, fancy car, beautiful wife, but suddenly seemed like he was fighting an unseen enemy. His eyes started being puffy. His fingers were swelling up. It seemed like as much as he worked out, it wasn't working out for him. He was beaten down. He was still a very, very young man. And people, being people, started to talk. A lot of people thought, oh, he's just an easygoing guy. That's just the way he is. He's in Southern California, man. Right, so we're laid back down there. So, so tell us, so bring us to kind of the culmination of this. Okay. Occasionally, I would run into that friend or that family member that I haven't seen in five years, and it would shock them to see me. And so after I was married, people would mention that to Anisha, and Anisha, he would say, well, no, that's just the way he is. He's probably just overworked and tired and, you know, just gained a little bit of weight. So when I met him, he was already slurring, and I thought that was... That's the way he talked. There's a point in time where things got a little serious. I would get up and, and spit up blood. And I thought, okay. I get up, my health started getting worse. I get up and I had these, you know, I get goosebumps as I'm, I'm saying this now. I have these nightmares. And the nightmare was I would see thick black snakes crawling around our house. And it was a bizarre dream. It would be recurring. And so, of course, when I shared this with my father-in-law, he said, well, of course we need to have a Shiva puja. You're having these bad dreams of black snakes crawling around. And I'm thinking, okay, all right. Okay, we're going to go to India, and we're going to sit down on the wet floor in a temple and pray over the snake god to take all this away. You know, kind of internally laughing about this. You don't think this is going to be... Come on. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, but you're going to go along with it. Because he's my father-in-law, and and I respect that. Right. We're in Bhubaneshwar in India, so and it's known for its temples. In this puja, typically they're uh, saying mantras. They're burning uh, fire and incense and, and... making sacrificial offerings of coconut and bananas and things that are symbolic in the Hindu religion to cast up, ward off evil spirits. And then part of it moves indoors inside the temple. And it moved indoor because we started having a major shower. We go indoors and there's a um, stone statue coming out of the ground. Kind of the head, imagine the head of a cobra. You know, like a cobra ready to Attack. You know, they've got flowers and garlands and, and the usual, and incense burning. The priest starts 
asking me to do certain things, tell me about our business, what we do, problems we've had. We'd had a couple of car accidents, health issues. I was feeling old and lethargic in my late 20s. You know, I had bags on my eyes, and he noticed immediately he said something's wrong. Here we are. So he asked me to start repeating these mantras. And, you know, my tongue at the time was thick, and I used to speak slowly, so he would start saying these things, and I'd have to repeat, and it was a struggle for me to repeat this stuff. Then he starts giving me these three or four leaf clovers, and he says, with your left hand, while you're saying the mantras, with one hand, start ripping them into pieces. So I'm saying the mantras and ripping these leaves. Then he goes, with your other hand, take some milk, and you're gonna offer this. Yeah, yeah, thunder and lightning outside in the middle of a monsoon, pouring milk with my right hand over this stone statue coming out of the ground, repeating these mantras, like trying to do three things, and it's starting to be like a mental and physical strain on me. So he gives me this, looks like a quart of milk in a brass copper container. I'm pouring this milk, and I'm pouring, and it's going on for five, 10 minutes, and, and it, the milk in the container won't finish. What? I, I kid you not. So you're pouring the milk and there's no, the milk's I mean, coming there's, out. there's goosebumps on my hand right now. You're, you're pouring the milk out. I'm pouring milk out here and it won't finish. And it takes so long that my right arm starts shaking. And so the, the, the priest turns to Anisha and says, your husband's having some trouble. You need to help him. And so he goes, so take your hands and when his arms are weak, you need to support him. So she reaches out, and she's not holding my arm. We're both getting tired, and in the meantime, I've still got the mantras going on, I've got the clover leaves, and this milk is not finished. There's a gust of wind, and the candles and the incense blow out. And they relight the candles and the incense, and the milk is finished. The priest stops and says to me, I feel good about this. He goes, go back, because your business is gonna be fine, your health is gonna be fine, you just have to remember to do certain things and think about Lord Shiva. So I said, okay. You know, you're inside this thousand-year-old temple and you're pouring milk that won't finish and there's incense and candles and the ch chanting and mantras and stuff and you're like, and then all of a sudden everything blows out. It's dark and there's a gust of wind out of nowhere indoors. I finish up the puja and we head back. And this is the part that gets strange. came back, all of a sudden, just within a couple of months, business started just booming. I was working one day and a gentleman just calls me out of the blue. And he says, I've got to meet you. I've got a major tax issue, a state planning issue. So I go up, I said, well, gee, I feel bad. You know, this guy really wants to meet me. So I meet him halfway. And this guy drives probably more than halfway. We're supposed to meet at a hotel. I walk into the lobby. There's a gentleman sitting there that I pass by. He looks up, looks at me. And he stops, he goes, are you a lot? I said, yes. He goes, hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so. How old are you? And I told him, very young, for, for the business that I'm in, I'm fairly young. He said, there's something wrong with your eyes. He goes, are you cold? Are you cold all the time? Have you gained a lot of weight? He started to ask me these questions, then he shakes my hand. He goes, he goes, I need you to do a blood test right away. I'm sitting there thinking, this guy's a loony. I've just dismissed this guy already. I'm driving back. What he's done is he's called my office and spoke to my father and left a message saying, you guys need to make sure 
Lalat has a blood test. He's all up in your business. I was like, who is this guy? I come back down, and my dad is freaked out. And my dad kind of twists my arm to do it. I get a call the next morning, first thing in the morning. Lalat, we met yesterday. I got your blood results back. I, I need you to see me today, and I can't have you drive yourself up. Uh, you could fall asleep and go into a coma while you're driving. Whoa. I need someone else to drive. Let's get up there. And uh, he said, you know, in all my years, I've not seen anyone with their uh, uh, thyroxin or whatever it is called level at this level. You should technically not be having a conversation with me. You should already be in a mix, what do you call a mixedemic coma. And, he, and he's Your changing. levels of... Right. are really, really low, so low that you should be in a coma. Right, right. He, he checks it out, and he says, here's the scale, normal range. Yours is like 100th of the low point of that range. Wow. You're running on empty. Your, your car's got one drop of gasoline left. You should already be stalled. And he prescribes something to me, and I am going out of my mind, full of energy. I should have been in a mixedemic coma full of energy. I met this guy out of the blue. And within a couple of months, I started losing the weight, the excess water, speech started. You, all of a sudden, that sluggishness of your speech went away entirely. Entirely. I said, wow. And when you first, I guess, saw him after that period, what did you think? Well, maybe they went a little too overboard on the meds because he was moving at such a fast speed that no one really, really could keep up with what he was trying to communicate and say and what he was thinking. Yeah, it was like complete transformation. And to this person who's now like talk super fast, half the size of what he was, and now wearing color. You, you married somebody else. Yes. What did you think about this new person? You're lying in bed next to some new guy. <laughs> some new guy. <laughs> Let me ask you, you can tell me that my own business. Okay. But I imagine that someone who is beaten down, lethargic and slow, yeah. might not be as active intimately as they were after this thing happened. How did you respond to this whole new guy? You know, we uh, sometimes he would tell me, oh, uh, he has to increase his doses. And I'm like, oh, please don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no, you do not need to increase your doses. <laughs> You're good. Clients would call up and say, we need to speak with a lot. And I'd say, a lot speaking. I said, no, I think we got the wrong person. Clients, until they met me, couldn't believe, because you know, I'm dealing with a lot of confidential issues. I had to go back and re-meet a lot of our clients. <laughs> People started asking me, hey, what happened? And it's easy to say, well, I had this problem, it's medicine, and this, and, and I really had to think about what happened. I'd say, hey, you know, I had this pucha, and, and I don't know what happened. But a series of events that happened after that, I was diagnosed with this, and, and I'm cured. What if someone just said, look, it's a coincidence. Coincidences happen. And this is a Western country. You should be diagnosed 
for an obvious condition. If that's what someone wants to believe, that occasionally good coincidences and miracles happen, great. But, but to me, if it was one odd event, I think it would have said a coincidence. When there's a series of odd events, and there's someone at the other end said, told me that, hey, these series of odd events is likely to happen and change your life. Because someone at the other end, when it started out, it was someone that I didn't believe. Are you more devout? Oh, no question. There are things that we don't understand that I don't understand, but I know that they've impacted my life. And that, so I am much more conscientious and, and open to the idea that, hey, there was a transformative event. And it's not explained by medicine. That was just the end result. Big thanks to the Patnaik family for sharing that personal story. We here at Snap Judgment advise that you see a physician before you slip into any comas. You're listening to Snap Judgment. My name is Glenn Washington, and I am going to make a Snap Judgment right here. Because live, give me that, this right here. This here in my hand, right here, I'm holding the electricity bill that just arrived. This is the bill for the electricity we need to keep bringing the soul and the funk to these Snap Judgment stores. I'm going to open it up. Just see what it says. Oh, it says it's past due. What? I can't find on this bill the public radio discount. Let me get that rent bill out there. Look, this one done got the public radio. Just mark. Well, now, you know good and well why I bring this up. Because you are a hardcore listener of public radio. But sometimes even those closest to us believe we operate in a different economic universe. That things that cost you money don't cost money over here in public radio. The sandwich you are going to have for lunch costs the exact same as the sandwich executive producer Mark Richards is going to eat. Mark, no sandwiches for you today. Put down, no. Ask the sandwich man for the public radio discount. Listeners, look at here. If you want executive producer Mark Rissich to have something to put between his bread, it's time to step up. I'm asking for your support of the things that make public radio go. Snap judgment will bring the funk, but friends, the funk ain't free. What's that number? Not the number for somebody else to call. The number you need to call because you're going to go home and spice up your conversation with what you heard on public radio today. You're going to be a more informed parent, student, teacher, storyteller, runner, citizen, voter, employee, boss, dog owner, banker, shopper, eater, cook. You are going to do all of those things better because of what you hear on this station. And I know that's worth something to you. What is the number to call? Aphrodite was a blonde. The ideal woman was, in the summer of 76, tanned with gleaming white teeth and flipped out hair. She was an angel. 
the Farrah Fawcett picture in the red bathing suit was the poster that all the boys had. She was the female icon. I would study that poster of her. I knew that this was a female and that I wasn't that. Nobody could mistake Sarah for a goddess. She was 16, and she was still flat-chested. No hips, no butt, no period. I would stuff athletic socks in a bra that was too big for me. And then one day in basketball practice, on the other end of the court, I saw a sock. The girls saw it. They called me Tank. The next day, one of the girls said, Susie, have you got a tissue? Tank, do you have a tissue? No, I don't have any tissues. Check your bra, Tank. Horrified. 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 But that wasn't the end of it. Things got worse as Sarah got taller and taller, six foot three, and fitting in became impossible. I looked more like I belonged on the defensive line of the high school football team. When she was 16, Sarah's parents finally became concerned about her lack of development, and they took her to see some doctors. They said that I'm genetically female. But Sarah had gonadal dysgenesis. Instead of ovaries, she had gonadal streaks, lumps of undeveloped tissue inside her that would become cancerous. They scheduled a surgery to remove the lumps and to see whether she had female sexual organs or whether they'd have to construct them within her. I was so ashamed that something about my gender and my genitalia was wrong. The last thing she hoped when they put her to sleep was that she would wake up normal. And the first thing my mom whispered into my ear was, you're a girl and you don't have to have any more surgeries. And her father came up and told her, you're all girl, you're 100% girl. She went on estrogen and developed breasts, but her body never looked quite like the other girls. She realized that she would never be a regular woman. And she was afraid that because of that, nobody would ever love her. I felt like that was God saying, you thought maybe you could escape and actually have a life and have children and be normal? No way, honey. I will squash you like a bug anytime you think you're going to have any happiness. But then came David. I very briefly was singing with a band, and David was friends with some of the bandmates. I was singing Me and Bobby McGee, Janis Joplin, and there weren't enough microphones, and I offered to share my microphone with this cute guy. He put his hand around my hip, I put my hand around his hip, and we swayed to the music, and David and I just talked and talked. It didn't matter what he was saying, I thought he was hot. At first, Sarah couldn't believe he was really into her. And I kept wondering, he doesn't seem to notice that I'm big, he doesn't seem to notice that I'm overweight, he just seems to really like me. He is either so highly evolved that he's not seeing the imperfections of the packaging, or he's a liar. And so we're in Sausalito, and we're hugging and kissing in the street, and some construction workers yell, get a room, fellas. I was mortified, because I thought now David's going to really notice how different I look. And... He just turned and laughed and said, you think she's a guy? You're idiots. David made Sarah feel like a woman. Well, a loud, brash, unladylike interpretation of a woman anyway. He made her feel like herself. And so, two years later, she's the one who proposed. I had a pendant made that had, will you marry me, David, written on one side. I got down on one knee in the hot tub and gave him the necklace. And he just said, yes, of course. 
Sarah and David found a priest, drove to Santa Cruz, and on a grassy knoll by the sea, they eloped. And they lived in wedded bliss for almost two decades. Last year, 19 years into their marriage, Sarah happened to be surfing the web. She'd always accepted the doctor's diagnosis, but she was curious and decided to Google her condition. And that's when she discovered something called Swire Syndrome. Remember when Sarah's father told her that she was a 100% girl? Well, he wasn't telling 100% of the truth. Though Sarah's body is physically female, she has XY chromosomes. Male chromosomes. After they diagnosed her, the doctors approached her father and said, if you want, we can make her a three-inch penis. Obviously, he turned them down, but nobody ever asked Sarah. Here I am, genetically male, and I had never thought until last year, I had never even considered the idea that I hadn't been told the complete truth. I thought I knew it all, my whole story. This explained everything. The reason why Sarah never felt like a woman is that she never was one. She wasn't a female with tomboyish traits. She is genetically male with female traits. I identify as an intersex human being. I live in this middle ground, and this middle ground ain't a bad place to be. This new person is still Sarah. She was happy with the person she'd cultivated over the past 20 years. Sarah could never have been an angel, but hermaphroditus was a god. But how would David react to Sarah's new identity? What would you do if your wife of 20 years came out to you as genetically male? My wife is named Sarah. She's tall, strong, beautiful. She's got breasts. She's got genitalia. She's female. And that's just the way I treat it. It's that simple for me. And it, when it last, and all this came up last year, my take on it was, okay, so now you know a little more details than you did before. But it doesn't change who you are. It couldn't. Good was easy boy when Bobby sang the blues. Feeling good was good enough for me. Good enough for me and Bobby McGee. If I had been an emotionally capable 17-year-old, I might have opted to go the male direction. I think I might have opted to keep my genitalia just as it is now, take testosterone, have a beard, and someone out there will love me. And I think David would have. If David, would have too. if David had come along in 1988 and found that Sarah living as Sam, David would have fallen in love with that person. Do you really think that? You know, I'd like to think so, and I, I gotta tell you, ain't nobody ever gonna know. Sarah and David just renewed their vows on the same knoll in Santa Cruz where they eloped 20 years ago. This time, their friends and family were there to witness the vows. You see, we can have happy endings on Snap Judgment. We can. Si se puede. You are listening to Snap Judgment. My name is Glenn Washington, and looky over here, looky here, looky here, looky here. See, NPR hosts are not supposed to make declarative statements. We're not supposed to venture our own opinion. 
or too bad. I'm gonna go ahead and break the rules right now because you see, scientists, physicists, chemists, they all will say that you are made out of stuff, atoms and cells and organs and vessels and stuff and stuff and stuff. I'm gonna tell you something, it's a lie. What are you made out of? Stories. Stories define you. They define how you see your world, your people, your mate, your life. And friends, where do you get your story? I know the answer. It's public radio. Support it because the good things in life ain't free. And think about it. You ever hear somebody say something like that? Hey, what you talking about? Where'd you get that from? And you say, NPR. It's in you and we need your support to keep it that way. What is the number to call? Make that snap judgment right now. There are two things you need to know about Jeff Greenwald in order to understand this story. The first is that he has always had this feeling, this vision, that at some point in his travels, be it Cleveland, Ohio, or trekking the Himalayas, at some point, he was going to find a gold ring. And it'll have a really special significance because when I find this gold ring, I'll put it on my finger and I'll know that it's a message from the powers that be that my spiritual quest has come to fruition, that I found what I'm looking for in the spiritual realm. So that's point one, gold ring. Put that in your head. Lock that in. All right. Item number two in our prelude is... What happened to Jeff when he went to the Ajanta Caves in Aurangabad, India? The Ajanta Caves were built between 200 and 650 AD. And there's about 20 caves in all filled with paintings that because of the the darkness and the closed nature of the caves are preserved and look almost as gorgeous as they did when they were first painted almost 2,000 years ago. So I went down to Ajanta and I'm wandering through the caves and I'm looking at all these scenes painted on the wall. And these are scenes from what are called the Jataka Tales. And the Jataka Tales are as well known in India and in Asia as the Walt Disney stories are are known here in, in the U.S. These are the stories of Buddha's past life. Because before Buddha was the Buddha, he had a life of every kind of animal and insect that you can imagine. He was a deer, he was the king of the monkeys, he was a fish, he was a, a meditator in a, in a cave somewhere in the mountains, he was a bird, he was every kind of animal and creature you could imagine. And these stories tell all the different tales of the wonderful things that the being that would become Buddha accomplished in his past lives. So I was walking from room to room in the Ajanta cave temples, actually walking from cave to cave because there are, all the rooms are caves that were carved from the living rock. And I came into this one room and there was a mural on the wall. And it was a mural of a scene from the actual life of Buddha, where Buddha has decided to renounce everything. He's, he rode his horse to the river Anoma, and he met a woodcutter there. He traded clothes with a woodcutter, cut off all of his hair. The Buddha cut off his long royal locks of hair, and then put on the woodcutter's simple clothes, said farewell to the horse, and crossed the river and began his quest to become the awakened one. And I looked at this scene of all the characters in this scene as Buddha's about to leave and renounce the world, and I looked at the imagery and I suddenly recognized myself in one of the characters in that mural. And this wasn't just a casual sense of, oh, I knew who that was. It was this absolutely overwhelming sense that I saw myself. I saw who I had been 2,500 years ago during the lifetime of the Buddha. You, the skeptic, 
were skeptical no longer. You recalled your past life. The scales had fallen from your eyes and you remembered what happened 2,500 years before when you were with the Buddha. I still thought reincarnation was a load of hooey. <laughs> but I couldn't deny that having seen this image and having recognized myself in this mural, this flood of memories had come back to me. And boom, Jeff's life changed forever. I didn't know what to do with it. It really worked against my whole worldview. The impact was so gigantic that a few weeks later, as soon as I got back to the United States, I began writing down all these memories that spontaneously arose to me from that lifetime. I remembered everything that had happened to me during those years, 25 centuries ago. And I wrote in great detail about my relationship with the characters in that scene and what it had felt like to be on the banks of the River Enoma that afternoon so long ago. That's item number two. So to sum up, one, Jeff will someday find a gold ring and his purpose will be revealed. And two, Jeff saw himself crossing the river with the Buddha in a painting in the Ajanta Caves in India. So that's two things, but actually there's a third one, and it involves a deal Jeff made with his friend Sally. And we had an agreement. If one of us ever found the Buddha anywhere in our travels, we would let the other person know. The other one would drop everything and come out to see if this were true. We would actually not even to see if it were true. We would take the other friend at their word. If Sally ever called me and said, Jeff, I've met the Buddha. You have to come. I would go. And that's exactly what happened. Sally called me in 1993. She was in Lucknow, India and said, I've met this guy. His name is Papaji. He's the real thing. I want you to come out here. You can't miss it. And I dropped what I was doing, and I got on a plane, and I flew to Delhi, and then I took the train to Ooh, Lucknow. She better not have been messing around. If you're going to go all that way, <laughs> she had better come correct with the goods. You want to see Buddha. She only had one chance to get this right. She couldn't ask me twice to come see the Buddha. She could only do it once. And this is when she decided to do it. Drop everything. I found the Buddha. So I arrived in this little town of Indiranagar, and I met Sally. And she started telling me about this guru she had found. And his name, his real name was Harilal Punja, though he went by the nickname of Papaji. Everyone called him Papaji. And as I got to know more about this, this, this fellow, I realized that he really did pass all the kind of internal tests I had for a great spiritual leader. He never accepted any money from any of his followers. He would only accept flowers or candy or books of poetry. He lived in a simple house on a dusty corner in Indiranagar and drove a little Maruti minivan around. Uh, he had wonderful relationships with his disciples, but he didn't have any what you'd call improper relationships. He was a big strapping guy who'd been a wrestler, and some people told me that during the 1940s he had even been something of a terrorist, blowing up trains and fighting for Punjabi independence. Every morning at about 10, Papaji would give what he called satsang, truth saying, where he would sit in a room with his 100 or 200 or 300 followers, whoever was there that day, and he would read letters from the audience and he would advise people what to do based on their predicament. Not only did he give wonderful advice, but Papaji had this great gift that you find in some of the real spiritual masters in India. He could do this technique, uh, I believe it's called 
near dear Dakshina, enlightening with the eyes. All your cares would melt away, and in that instant of 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 engagement with him, you would see all the way through, and you would become enlightened in an instant. This finger snap enlightenment with the eyeballs was something that Papaji had mastered, and I watched as one devotee after another went up on stage and had their questions answered, and some, for the lucky few, Papaji would look them in the eye, and they would break down into spontaneous laughter or throw their arms in the air and, and start just, just singing out of this sheer feeling of jubilation of having been even momentarily liberated. There are many wonderful stories about things that Papaji did uh, when people wrote him letters. One, one particular story really stands in my mind. It was a woman who really wanted to stay in Indiranagar and study with Papaji, but she had this terrible crippling phobia of dogs. Now, if you've ever been to India, you know that the streets are, are full of dogs, and some of them are very gentle, of course, but others can be unpredictable. And if you have a fear of dogs, just walking to your, your flat at night or walking out to breakfast in the morning can be an extremely harrowing experience. And the woman wrote a note to Papaji and went up on stage and started to talk to him about it. So Papaji read her letter and he said, uh, hmm, you have a fear of dogs. It's very inconvenient here in India. I have an idea, but I can't really do anything for you right now. Come back tomorrow. And when the woman came in the next day, uh, Papaji called her up onto the stage, onto the dais where he sat, and he gave her a box. And inside the box was a newborn puppy for her to raise. And I remember just looking at it, looking at him and looking at the expression on that woman's face and thinking, this guy is like King Solomon. He really is an enlightened master. After I'd been at the um, satsang for two or three days, maybe it was a week, some of uh, Papaji's closest followers came up and, and, and surrounded me as I sat in the lunchroom eating some rice and curry. And they said, Sally tells us that you're a journalist from the United States. And I said, yes, I'm a, I'm a writer and journalist. I've written some books and I, I do a lot of interviews. And they said, well, we have a proposition for you. Papaji has said that he would like to do a video interview uh, that will be shown on Indian television. It would take about two hours. We need somebody who's willing to ask him really, you know, really um, probing questions and be on camera for this period of time. Would you be comfortable being that interviewer? And I thought to myself, wow, what an honor. This is, this is great. And I turned to him and I said, I'd love to do it. Let me come up with a sheet of questions. So Jeff started writing questions, probing every rumor. Was it true, really true, that Papa G used to be a professional wrestler? Was he really a Punjabi freedom fighter? All the questions amounted to really one single question for Papa G. Who are you? Jeff Greenwald was ready. The stage was set for an interview with the man thousands of followers believed to be the living Buddha. I walked into the Zatsang Hall the next evening, and the place was just packed. There were three video cameras set up with uh, technicians standing around each one. The stage was awash in lighting and covered with flowers. All of Papaji's devotees had brought him bouquets of flowers, which were all over the stage, making it look like, like a, more of a wedding than, a, than an interview. And we sat down together, facing each other, and I began asking him questions about himself and his life. And he laughed, and he, he turned to the audience, and he played so well off the questions, and he was so clear, and I was just sitting there thinking to myself, this is amazing. How did I ever get lucky enough to be into this situation where I'm sitting there interviewing a living Buddha in front of hundreds of people? What kind of weird karma has led me to this moment? 
And uh, I was asking Papaji about one of the main questions that haunts spiritual seekers, which is, how do you take what you've learned in a, in a spiritual context? How do you, you take the lessons that you get from a spiritual master and bring them into the real world? It's so hard to, to live a life as a layperson and yet really try to have any kind of spiritual orientation. And in answer to the question, Papaji turned to me and he started telling me a story. And I was surprised because it was actually the exact same story that I had seen 10 years ago in that mural in the Ajanta Caves. It was the exact same story of how the Buddha, when he decided to reach the awakened state, had had to leave his palace at Kapilavastu and ride his horse to the river Enoma, cut off his hair, get rid of his clothes, and abandon everything. And, and uh, Papaji just stood there describing the whole scene in amazing detail, just as it had been in that mural in Ajanta. And then he leaned over and he put his hand over the microphone, and Papaji leaned over to my ear, and he looked him in the eye and he said to me, I think you remember. I think we were there. And he fixed me with his gaze. And at that moment, it was as if the entire fabric of space-time unraveled like a sweater caught on a thorn bush. For a split second that expanded into an unknown amount of time, all of eternity seemed like one moment. And I saw my life not as, a, not as just, a, not as, just as, as, as myself, as Jeff sitting there in the chair. I saw every place I had ever been and everyone I had ever known as if it had happened at the same instant. And I looked into Papaji's eyes and I, I knew that I had known him for centuries, that he had been there at the banks of the river Enoma with me when he had been the Buddha and I had been his horse. What? His horse. It seemed that we stared in each other's eyes forever, but I must have blacked out. Something must have happened, because the next thing I remember is Papaji's hand on my shoulder, shaking me, shaking me, saying, come back, come back, we have an interview to finish. And everyone in the satsang hall laughing and rocking back and forth, and the, the lights in my eyes, and Papaji laughing, and his hand on my shoulder, and I opened my eyes, and that moment, that instant, was somehow gone, and yet I knew it would always be with me for the rest of my life. After the interview ended and the cameras started to roll away, Papaji and I left the stage. He was immediately surrounded by his hundreds of followers, all of whom just, just hugging him and holding him, tears rolling down their cheeks, telling him how profound the interview had been and how much it had moved them. I walked out alone, and uh, as I walked through the hall and out of the satsang and into the street, I heard a voice behind me calling, wait, wait, Jeff, please wait. And I turned around and there was a man, a very beautiful looking man who I knew as Thomas, who had been to many of the satsangs with me. And I hadn't really ever spoke to him, but now he looked at me in a way that just seemed so intimate that I, I'd really never experienced anything like it. And he walked up to me and he said, Jeff, he said, you and I have never really met before. But as you were up there speaking with Papaji, I realized that for many, many years and many lives, you and I have been brothers. And to make that clear, he said, to tell you that I'm, to show you that I'm, I'm absolutely certain that this is true, I have something to give you. And he reached one hand into the other and pulled off the gold ring he was wearing on his finger, and he handed it to me. I can't take this, I said. You have to take it, he said. It already belongs to you. If you don't want it, just leave it on the ground. <laughs> 
but it's yours and has always been yours from the moment I saw it. I took the ring and I looked at it and I understood what it meant. And the ring, Glenn, remains on my finger. That's the ring. This is the ring. That's it. Wow. You're listening to Snap Judgment. My name is Glenn Washington, and I want you to look inside, deep, deep inside, because you're listening to public radio during the middle of a pledge drive. Think about that. You, my friend, are one of us. Don't try to listen for the phones ringing in the background, hoping somebody else is going to pick up your slack. How can we give you back your self-respect? I've got it. What is that phone number? Operators are standing by. 